Think about the nativity scene again. A scene we've often looked at over the course of this uh, series. The nativity scene, of course, is that scene uh, that many of us have on ornaments or somewhere in our house this time of the year. Maybe a two-dimensional scene on your wall or a three-dimensional um, collection of, of uh, figures that you may have on a mantelpiece or a shelf somewhere. This is God with us. The nativity scene. God with us. Jesus Christ, born of a baby. God chose of all things to enter into the womb of an unmarried teenager. Now think of the stigma. In his day, and certainly our day, God chose to enter into this context. He was placed in a feeding trough, wrapped in rags, born in a cave, targeted for death. He was raised on the run. This is not a royal birth. It has no dignity like a royal birth certainly would. 33 years later, he would die with even less dignity than his birth provided him. He was convicted and beaten, abandoned, naked, shamed, and crucified on a slave's cross. There is no dignity in a slave's death. This is what God chose to enter into, a life that had very little dignity. No one in Jesus' day would have looked at his birth or his life or his death and said, that is a great man. Nobody would have done that. Nobody would have looked at his birth, his life, or his death and said, he is a great man. They wouldn't have called him great. There were people who were assigned that title in Jesus' day, Herod the Great, for instance. But they were the ones sitting in the palaces, and they were the ones sitting on the thrones. They were the ones ruling over nations. They were the ones who demanded people's worship. Matthew, there are four accounts of Jesus' life in uh, the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so when Matthew gives an account of Jesus' birth, he provides Jesus with a completely different title. He says, go and search carefully for the child. The place where the child was. They saw the child with his mother. Take the child and escape to Egypt. Take the child and go to the land of Israel. And so he got up, took the child. You see, the title child, especially in that day, would have been a stark contrast with king and with greatness. In the ancient status-ordered world, the children were at the very bottom of the ladder. The very bottom of the ladder. In both Greek and Latin, the word child meant not speaking. And so in their day, they didn't only give children, uh, they, they thought children lacked wisdom, but they didn't give children a voice as well. Children were not good for much in Jesus' day. They were known for their fear and their weakness, their helplessness. And in Jesus' day, to be a child was to be dependent, to be defenseless, to be fragile and vulnerable at risk, to be a child meant that you were weak. And because children were viewed this way, the vast majority of the gods in the Greco-Roman world did not have childhood stories. They didn't have stories about how the gods were as they were children. Very few of them did this. The ones that did, uh, Hercules, for example, uh, has a story about when he was a baby, he grabbed two poisonous snakes. Even when he was in his cradle, he grabbed two poisonous snakes and smashed their heads together to kill them. But stories like this for the gods of the Greco-Roman society were given them to provide them dignity, because children didn't have any. So they told these fanciful stories so that the children would be exalted and highlighted even, even as they were children. The gods would be uh, highlighted and exalted even as they were children. But in no reliable source, is there any stories of Jesus doing anything to throw off indignity as a child for the sake of greatness? There's no reliable source that says that Jesus did any of this. What we know of Jesus was that he grew up in a peasant household to a mother who had borne him out of wedlock as a teenager, and that he was birthed in a cave, in a stable, placed into a feeding trough, 
lived as a peasant through most of his life. Very humble circumstances. God enters into a life that provided him very little dignity in their day. God embraced this humility, and in this moment, he begins to disrupt what it means to have worth. God, the giver of worth, enters into the most humble and undignified of circumstances, and he begins to disrupt what it means to have worth. And so it's really odd, if you think about it, in 1776, our forefathers crafted the Declaration of Independence, and in this document... They were able to say, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that they are obvious, that they are natural, that all men are created equal. That is a striking claim that they were able to make. See, this claim was not self-evident to the ancient world. This claim was not self-evident to the ancient world. Aristotle said that hierarchy in society was natural and it was expected that some were marked out for subjugation and others were marked out for rule. It was obvious to the ancient world that man was not created equal. Inherent worth was doled out on a sliding scale, beginning with the emperor, he had the most worth, slid all the way down to children, to women, and to slaves who were at the bottom of society, who were afforded the very least of the worth. And so what came between Aristotle and Thomas Jefferson to change all this? What came between Aristotle and Thomas Jefferson to change this mentality that all men are created equal? Well, a guy by the name of Jesus came along, and he began to teach what the Jewish people already knew, that everybody is made in God's image. Every single person that walks upon this earth is made in God's image and therefore is worthy of dignity and respect. You are valued. You are valued. You have dignity. You have worth. God loves you. God cares for you. You are made in the image of God. See, nobody other than the Jews thought this in Jesus' day. This is a totally radical thinking in Jesus' day. Nobody other than the Jews taught this in Jesus' day. But here's the thing. The Jewish teachers didn't even live this out. The Pharisees and the ones who taught the law did not even live this out. The, the Jewish teachers were the ones who were often praying, God, thank you. Thank you, Jehovah. Thank you, Yahweh, for not making me a Gentile. Thank you for not making me a woman. Thank you for not making me a slave. Thank you for giving me value. God. Thank you for giving me some element of worth because slaves and women and Gentile, they don't have any worth. They don't have any value. So thank you for not making me like them. So when Jesus begins teaching it, but he also begins proving it by the way he treats every single person, it throws a, everyone into their, uh, in their entire society, their entire culture into a frenzy. So radical, this teaching is so radical. In the Greco-Roman world of their day, only the king or the emperor was made in the image of God, or the image of the gods. Only he had divine status. Normal, everyday people did not share the king's divine image. They were not created by the same God, and so they grew up in a different world. In the Greco-Roman world, in the empire, the Roman empire, some babies grew up to be women who were generally shut off from education and public life and were only valued for their ability to bear other children. It's really the only value women had in their day was their ability to bear children. And so if you were infertile or you weren't able to produce children, you literally had no value in their day. Women had the same legal classification as children and therefore they were always the property of some man. And so in our world, if your car is damaged, compensation goes to you, the owner. <coughs> in the ancient world, if a woman was violated, 
Compensation would either go to her husband or to her father based on that same principle. The owner is the one who gets compensated, not the person who is violated or offended. There were other babies in the Roman world who grew up to be slaves, and they were valued for their strength, but otherwise they were considered to be dogs. Many babies didn't grow up at all. In the ancient world, unwanted children were simply left to die. The head of the household had every legal right to determine the, uh, the life or the death of a child up until its eighth day. Plutarch, a first century biographer, simply said that until the eighth day, babies were really more like plants than they were humans. And so you had eight days to determine if you wanted your child to live or to die. The most common reason to abandon a child, to leave them exposed to the elements and to die, would be that if the family lived in poverty and you had to divide your resources up to another mouth to feed, it just it wasn't, it wasn't feasible to do so, and so you'd leave the child to die. Another reason would be that if a wealthy family didn't want to divide up their estate, they didn't want their estate divided up in s- between so many people, they would, they would um, leave a child to die and expose a child. If a child looked to be disabled or appeared weak, if the baby was simply born the wrong gender, which in their case was always female, oftentimes they would leave children to die. Abandoned babies were often left at the dump. Most of them died. Some of them were rescued. But even the ones who were rescued were just rescued to be enslaved later on in life. One's worth was based on what you could offer the state, and considering that women were only good for childbearing and kids were too weak to contribute to society, women and children had no worth and were afforded no dignity in the ancient world. Certainly this has changed, right? Certainly it's changed. I mean, we had these kids presented up before us, and what do we all do? We take out our phones, and we're like, oh, look at how cute they are. They're so great. And kids are awesome, right? Kids are wonderful. And yes, we afford children a lot of dignity and a lot of worth. We make sure that our kids have the best education. We make sure that they have clothes on their back, um, that they brush their teeth at night. We care or are concerned about what they are eating for their meals. Man, we dole out all sorts of crazy money at birthday parties and at Christmas, And we extend all crazy amounts of worth to our children. And yet, in a lot of areas of our world, children are very much neglected. And America still aborts nearly one million babies every single year. Certainly things have changed, right? Our our nation almost elected a woman to be in its highest office. I mean, to, to raise a woman to that standard, of course we are giving women dignity and worth and value within our culture. But this fact doesn't undermine the fact that only 14% of corporate leadership positions go to women, nor does it undermine the fact that women are still undervalued in our society and most workforces, they're still underpaid. They're often seen simply as sex objects. Certainly things have changed, but we are not that far removed from the first century experience. I'm going to invite my friend Stacy forward, and she's going to share her story of dignity and worth. Please, would you welcome Stacy? Hi, Stacy. Hi. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> kind of a wreck right now. I'm a little nervous. Do you want some tissues? Would that be helpful? Um, I don't know. At some point, I hope I don't right, start we'll, crying. We'll, we'll find out. We'll okay. find out. <laughs> So, Stacey, what role did uh, dignity and worth, or the lack thereof, play in your story? Um, I was raised here in Levittown, and I had uh, two 
older brothers and eventually eight years later, a little sister. Um, my brothers, I, first I want to say I have a lot of really good memories of my childhood. Um, a lot of them have to do with my grandmother. Um, but a lot of my childhood was painful. I um, was sexually abused by my father, physically abused by both my father and my mother. And um, that set the stage for really a lifetime of not having dignity or worth, not loving myself mm. at all. Um, I spent my, my adolescence um, looking outside of myself, watching myself play, watching myself be with my brothers and playing in the neighborhood, but not feeling connected to that person, um, which then turned into being a teenager and uh, looking the parts. Um, you know, my father wanted me to be perfect and my mother wanted me to be quiet. And um, my mother was very jealous of what was happening. Um, and like I said, I looked the parts. I was a cheerleader. I was, I guess, popular. Um, but I couldn't feel any of the uh, joy that, was, that should have been coming from what looked like a normal existence. Um, so um, I finally rebelled, and I went to a party. And that party um, was where I had taken my first drink. Um, I was then raped that night by six boys. And that sealed the deal. I was nothing. Um, but I have to say that through it all, I didn't feel totally alone. Um, I know now that that was God that was with me. Um, I always felt, I always knew that, that whatever was happening to me was wrong. And, um, but still that wasn't enough for me to look to God or for me to, uh, care about myself and what I was putting myself through. Um, and from there I became a blackout drunk, which then led to um, I guess, as you'll hear, eight years of uh, years of fighting with um, myself and wrestling with addiction. So this lack of dignity and worth that you found within yourself, it led to a, a kind of life that was um, addicted mm -hmm. and drunk. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. Do you want to elaborate? What kind, what kind of life did this... Um, ex <coughs> um, I... Um, ended up being uh, kicked out of my house. Um, I wasn't being what I was expected to be, which was uh, quiet and pretty and perfect. Um, so I, like I said, I was, I was kicked out of my house. Um, I lived in a homeless shelter for a little bit. I didn't graduate high school. I eventually got my GED. Um, 
And I hated myself. I hated myself. And I found a room for rents. I tried to kill myself. My parents took pity on me when that happened and took me back. Um, but I was still browbeaten, and I mostly browbeated myself. I couldn't even look in a mirror, kind of do this um, when getting ready in the daytime, you know, in the morning. Um, and then um, I met a boy, a guy. I was, I was 18. And um, he was somebody that I'd grown up with, um, but we didn't spend any time together. And I thought that for finally someone sees me. Someone sees Stacy. And I was trying to figure out who Stacy was. Um, that quickly turned into a very abusive, severely abusive relationship. Um, beatings were relentless, but that wasn't something that I was not accustomed to. Um, and I felt like um, if I could make this stop, then I'm worthy. If I could make him care about me, the way that I still knew somewhere inside of me I deserve to be cared about, then I am worthy. Um, I also think that I wanted my family to fight for me. I didn't hide really what was happening, um, but that wasn't, that wasn't going to happen. Um, my father was angry with me with what was happening, because I was still in his eyes a possession. Um, I, I, one of those beatings that um, had turned into, I mean, it was hours long, and I was dumped on my driveway, and I worked my way up the driveway, and my dad saw me and drug me into the house and called this, this guy and told him, if you're going to do this to her, then you can take her to the hospital. And, and I knew that I really was absolutely worthless. No one was ever going to fight for me. So I wasn't going to fight for myself. Um, he then ended up raping me um, eventually. And I didn't say anything. I felt like I deserved it. Um, I felt like almost like that was, that was just part of the relationship at that point. Um, but um, a friend, one of my only friends, uh, came to me and knew something very, very serious had happened. I still didn't tell her. And something that she had said had made me realize that this is wrong. And I had what, what I think is, is a God moment. And I stood up for myself. I told him he needs to leave me alone. I went to the police. I got a PFA against him, protection from abuse. Um, but it was still a struggle. I was still afraid of change. I was, I, I felt God calling me, um, but I wasn't ready for him. And um, during the time with that PFA, he had also, he had, he had broke into my house and he raped me again. Um, hard drugs by this time were in my life. He had introduced hard drugs into my life, mainly cocaine. 
and that numbed everything that was happening mm. that allowed me to keep it going and um, after the second time he raped me I eventually I put myself into rehab because um, while it was happening I, I I knew this life is not the life that I need to be living and I knew that there was something better for me. So I put myself in rehab and there I found out I was pregnant with my first child, Riley. She's 18 now, <coughs> living on her own in uh, Philly, um, doing great. Um, and I finally thought that I had a purpose. I finally, I'm going to be a mother and I'm going to show everybody right. that I, um, I can, I can, I'm going to show my family that I am deserving of their attention and their love because I can do that, because I can love my child this way, because I can give her everything on my own. Hmm. Did it begin to change at some point? Like, what, what was the catalyst that, I mean, you, you mentioned your daughter. Mm -hmm. What other catalysts uh, helped you begin to move forward to find dignity and worth? Um... Or what role, what role did, uh, did, did finding some dignity and worth begin to, to play in your redemptive st story? Um, I, I had moved out on my, I moved back, I was living with my mother, with Riley, and um, I had moved on my own. I had, um, um, after when she was five, I moved to North Carolina and um, found a career raising my daughter on my own. I, I was taking her to church, Catholic church. Um, and still like trying to find, find God and um, also wanting to give that to her, something to hold on to, something that I wasn't given. Um, I ended up getting married um, to my future ex-husband. <laughs> um, still looking for worth through somebody else. Mm -hmm. So I was trying to find worth through my daughter. I was trying to find worth through my husband and still not being able to look at it, look for it in myself or look for it in, in God. Um, and, and feeling like God didn't um, believe in me, but, but really I didn't believe in myself. Mm. Um, our marriage was there were there were beautiful times in our marriage um, but he obviously wasn't the one for me um, we had two more children and um, again I found purpose um, I had them you know Riley's 18 my, my next one was seven so there's a big spread in there um, and by this time I'm kind of trying to control my life to death I'm trying to control everything to, to, to find worth and purpose. Um, if I can make everything perfect, if I can make everything right, then I'm good. Um, and, and, and God was, was still with me. I knew he was, and I was trying to find my way to him, but I was just doing it all wrong. Um, eventually, addiction came back into my life, because through this time, I, I, I you know, found my purpose in my family. Um, but you can only do that for so long. You can only control your life so, so much until you finally break. And um, mm -hmm. 
um, I had gotten very sick. I have a blood disease, and that caused a lot of pain and surgeries. And pain medication turned into heroin, and heroin turned into crack. And um, um, I lost everything, everything, everything. Um, but God kept calling me. Um, I, that kind of, uh, I, you know, I, was, I was arrested. I've been to jail, um, rehabs. Um, I, I deserted my children, all of them, because I didn't feel like I deserved them. Um, a lot of self-loathing and feeling bad for myself. Um, but like I said, God kept calling me, and there were little, he had said once to me before, like, look for God's signposts. And his signposts were, were everywhere in retrospect. Um, one of those signposts, and this is what leads me to restoration. Um, my son, in the very beginning, as my addiction was starting up, there was a woman whose children, you know, our children went to preschool together. And I went to their kids' birthday party, and I met Ross for the first time. And um, she had told me that that was her pastor and you should come to my church. And, you know, it's a great place. And I was excited about that idea. Um, but as I said, I was, my addiction was just starting back up again. And I did come in once, <coughs> once. And I sat all the way in the back. And I cried and I cried and I cried. I thought people would think I'm crazy. Um, but I still wasn't ready. Um, I wasn't ready to see my life so differently. Uh, but I knew, I mean, God was, was holding on to me while I was sitting in that chair. And I didn't actually hear a voice. But I knew he was telling me that this is where your life is. This is this, find me. Here I am. Um, I brought you here. And, but I still wasn't ready to see that I, I had lived an entire life not loving myself and being told that I was not lovable. And to then be loved so unconditionally, and I felt that that day, I ran scared. Hmm. I also didn't feel like I, I deserved to be here because I was using drugs. So again, I wasn't worthy of being right. in a church. Um, Um, while I was thinking about talking here today, um, a lot of things had come to mind. And one of the biggest things, one of the biggest signposts for me was, well, Walmart is obviously right over there, and my house is over there. And I had to drive past Walmart. I would go to that parking lot because it's a parking lot that you could get lost in. And at that time, it was still open all 24 hours. So I would use in that parking lot. Um, and I had to drive by restoration day after day, time after time. Um, and I would look, I couldn't help it. I was, my, my head would be forced to look to my left or to my right leaving. And I would think about this place and you can find God in, in any 
church, I suppose, but this is where God led me, was into here. And I would remember being in that chair, and I would sometimes get angry because I, I, I wasn't ready. Um, but I did feel somewhere that I was going to come back here someday. And eventually, you know, I did. So, <laughs> um, I, um, before I, I, I had, I still, um, I had gone to rehab a couple of times. The, 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 the first time I had come back, to, I had gone to rehab, um, you know, I was 19. The second time was just, not this past summer, but the summer before. And, um, you know, it's amazing what addiction can do to you. It strips you of everything, which really is you stripping yourself of everything. And I, I, I just treated myself the way that I had always been treated. Um, the standard was set <coughs> by my parents. Um, and not that my parents didn't love me. Um, you'll, you'll, I ended up forgiving my parents. Um, just, my, I forgave my mother when, my, when I had my daughter. I realized how unloved I was, what love really was. And that she, how sick she had to be to not give me what she needed, what, what I needed. Hmm. Um, so that was the beginning. I think that was the very, very beginning, the first time that I, I realized that maybe I deserved more. Um, but then, like I said, addiction, you, 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 there's still all that pain and you cover it up with drugs. And, um, I ended up finding myself, um, kidnapped by my crack dealer, held in his house for a month and a half. And... Um, at first, I fought, and then I learned quickly not to fight. And then I decided that I didn't deserve to live again. So I did that when I was 18, and here I was 37, and I'm deciding I don't deserve to live, and that my children deserve to have a real life without me. Um, but then again, God called me. And on that last day, um, I, this, this man eventually gave me my stuff back, put it through back in the room. My phone was long dead by then. On that last day, I, I, I was going to, to jump the, out the window. The windows were painted black from the outside. I, I knew I was up on the third floor. Um, I was going to jump out the window. And then something again screamed out to me the way that it did in that chair. And I knew that I couldn't that if I was going to do this, I was going to make my children feel the same way that I always felt, that they weren't worthy, that they didn't deserve to have a mom. I was going to fight for them. So I um, quietly searched the, the carpet, pulling up the carpet, and I found a cord. I don't know what told me to do that. Um, well, I guess I do. It was God. Um, and this cord, I, I put the wires together. I mean, it sounds like an unbelievable story, but it's true. And I got just uh, two percent on my cell phone. And now this family that I didn't think loves me, um, I ended up ended up filing a missing persons report. They missed me. They needed me back. And um, 
as quickly as that 2% was on my phone, it was off my phone. The wire stopped working, and, and I sat there afraid. What do I do? If I call the police, they'll kill me. And, and I, I did all of that and, and lost that 2%, and now my chance is gone. Um, and then there was, um, he came to the door, and he, he said, get out of here. Threatened me. The police are here. And what I ended up finding out after going to the hospital, they, they took me. They weren't sure if I was there on my own volition. They weren't sure what, what the story was. They just asked me if I wanted to come with them. And I fell into their arms and said yes. And they took me to the hospital where I had died twice that night. Because um, my body had given out. I was starving. Um, and um, it turned out that in the 2%, the police had pinged my phone and found my location. If that's not God, then what is that? Um, you, you would think that that would change everything. You would think that it's, I wish I could say that that fixed everything, that, that now this was my big moment and everything was better. Um, but it wasn't. I, I, the, the things that had happened to me in that house um, and throughout my whole life um, still weighed on me. I still, I, I still needed more help. Um, so I continued to use for a few months um, and then put myself in rehab um, where I finally shared what had happened to me. Um, and I had gotten six months clean and I started coming here. I came here every Sunday, me and my kids. And um, um, God was finally working on me. He finally was, I was allowing him to reach into that darkness and mm. And um, feel grace, feel forgiveness, feel like I did deserve a life, you know, because you can only live for your children for so long. Um, I had to live for myself. Um, it was still very hard. Um, I still had a lot of pain. And um, I ended up relapsing again after six months for a week. And that landed me back in jail again. Um, um, I can't believe I survived that week. Was, one week was as bad as that first year and a half that I was using. Um, but I did. And I think, I, I believe that God had saved um, I fell asleep in my car, pulled over on the side of the road. I, it's, God, I didn't hurt anyone. Um, oh. And um, I ended up back in rehab um, from jail. I had to, that was a stipulation. Um, you have to go into a rehab. And I was offered a 30-day rehab. But then they mentioned, I, I for some reason had told this woman who was, who was setting this up at the jail for me uh, part of, of what I had dealt with in my life. And she said, well, you know what, there's, there is this trauma program, but it's three months. And my head was screaming, no, 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 no. But my mouth just said, okay, I'll do that. And that was God again. Um, it had to be. Um, and, I, and I had known that this is where my problem lies. I needed to deal with, with these things that had happened to me. Um, or I was going to continue to hurt myself, which then it turns, hurt, turns into hurting my family and making my children feel the way that I did and so forth. Um, so I went into this trauma program and I even ended up asking for an extension. I stayed there for four months. And um, while I was there, 
Um, well, while I was in jail, I have to say that that's when I forgave my father. He was the first thing on my mind. I don't know, I, I don't know why. I, I think that that was God again. I think um, um, he was telling me that I need to let this go. I need to... Um, I'm not going to be able to be what God sees in me, what God created me to be, if I keep holding on to all this pain. Mm -hmm. So, and then two days later, I got a letter from him. Communication was not something that we did. And he had told me that um, he wants me to stop hurting myself. He used to say, you need to forgive me because God forgives me, as he was on his own journey with Christ. And, um, but this time he said, I want you to forgive me because I want you to stop hurting yourself for what I did to you. And at that point, I knew that he had changed, you know, that God can work on anybody. And yeah. I was finally ready to let it go. And um, love him the best way that I could. And I knew that God had my back. Because um, only these things can happen through God. And I was able to give my dad the grace by forgiving him that God was giving me day in and day out and day in and day out. Yeah. Um, so I went into this long-term treatment program and uh, this guy, my dad, uh, that I just forgiven for these horrible things, is the man that I asked to call Ross and let him know where I was. Isn't that interesting? And I just put that together too while I was thinking about speaking, that the, these two polar opposites at, some, at one point um, were, were now the people I was joining together to pray for me. And um, um, then I talked to Ross, I called him. Um, I was afraid at first. I thought, oh, he might be mad at me. <laughs> um, again, maybe feeling like I didn't deserve to be here. Um, and he obviously didn't make me feel like that at all. Um, then I received cards, and I want to take this time to thank anyone that had sent me a card. Um, I had gotten um, these cards. And I, 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 all in a, a stack. And then I'd gotten a few random ones here and there. And it was overwhelming. And I, I here are people that, that don't even know me. Opening their hearts and showing me that I am worthy of their time to do this for me. Um, and I, I shared them with the other women that were there and in hopes of trying to show them that God is real and he really loves us and he forgives us and we need to forgive ourselves. Um, I came out of there and I am still sober today. Um, I have eight months this week and it's still a, a struggle. Um, I feel strong in my sobriety. I don't feel like I'm, I'm going to use. But I, I, 
I still struggle with, with feeling worthy, feeling worthy of the good things that are happening to me now. Yeah. Um, I um, believe so much that God led me to this place and that God had walked through this with me the whole time. Um, yeah. Starting point is something that, that, they, that they have here and um, um, we're still meeting, we're meeting again tonight. And it's, it's a series of asking the question, who is Jesus? And it's, for me, it's been a beautiful experience and I consider it part of my recovery. And I consider this church part of my recovery and I consider the couple that runs our group part of my recovery. And um, I've never had so many beautiful things in my life and it's only because of God. Because he he for, he forgives everything before we even do it, hmm. and um, um, today I can feel the grace that God gives us. Um, I don't deserve it. Um, maybe. <laughs> Maybe I do. Mm -hmm. So. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Hey, let me, uh, let me say a prayer for you before we head off too quickly. And then if you don't mind, it's, it's just, it's the, the conclusion of all this is just too important. So if you don't mind sticking around for just a little while longer, we're going we're gonna to wrap this up. But um, let us pray for Stacy. Father in heaven, you love us. And the... Uh, the story that, that Stacy shares this morning of the brokenness of this world, Father, uh, your love is, is what puts it back together. And so you have you've just poured out this love upon Stacy, and, and you want her to experience so many incredible blessings, and, uh, and you just want to lavish them upon her and pour them out upon her, Father, so that she can experience this life as you have created and designed it to be experienced. So, Father, I pray that she would just continue to open up her heart to receive your love and and your dignity and your worth, Father, your grace, your forgiveness, all of these incredible, beautiful attributes, and that she may just continue to open herself up to share them, Father. She has such an incredible story, and uh, I just pray that so many people would be encouraged and changed because of her willingness to share. So thank you for her life, and continue help her to remember uh, every single day that you love her unconditionally, Father. We do thank you for who you are and for Stacy's story. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Thank you so much. So imagine a world, imagine a world where Stacy's story is multiplied through every household. And in a lot of ways, that's the, that's the life that Jesus grew up in. That's the context that Jesus grew up in. How bleak and dark and depressing does this world become when we have no value? When we're not given dignity, we're not given worth. Way back in Genesis 16, there's a story of Abram. His wife, Sarah, uh, had her slave girl, Hagar. And Hagar, as a slave, was not afforded value or worth other than the work that she could perform. Except her mistress, Sarah, couldn't produce children. And so Hagar's worth was now her failsafe. I am now the means by which Abraham and Sarah are going to have a child. And so I have a little bit of worth. I am the backup plan in case Sarah couldn't produce children. And, 
And in this case, um, she began to do her duty, sleep with Abram to provide him a child. Now, as the concubine for uh, Abram, there was no intention that Hagar would ever keep this child. Legally, Hagar was the property of Abram and Sarah, and so she wasn't going to keep this child. It was going to be handed over to Abram and Sarah. And so when the baby came, her worth would be diminished to providing this child with food through nursing. That's the only reason that Hagar stuck around is because she was the one who was going to nurse this child. But when it was discovered that she was pregnant, Hagar began to love her baby. As any mother would, she began to love the child that was growing inside of her. And so she began to despise Sarai for um, claiming the child as her own. And so Sarai doesn't appreciate uh, her slave girl standing up for her. And so Sarai begins to abuse her and uh, physically and, and emotionally and verbally begins to abuse her slave girl, Hagar. And so Hagar runs away. Uh, she had never been offered dignity in her whole life. Hagar had never received dignity. She had never knew what it felt like to be valued. Her ovaries were the only thing about her that, that gave her any worth whatsoever within her context. And while she is fleeing, she met a messenger of God who is, convinces her to return to Abram and to submit to Abram and to Sarah. Because the child is only the beginning of Hagar's legacy. She is told to call this child Ishmael, because the Lord hears her. The Lord hears you. The Lord hears you. All those nights that she cried out, wondering if she was ever heard, she have any worth, she had any value, the Lord hears her. All those times she questioned her worth and she was afforded no value, the Lord has been hearing her this whole time. The Lord has been present. And in this she found courage to stand up and walk back home. Someone does care about me. Someone does think that I have value. Somebody does think that I'm somebody and they cry with me and they hear me. Hagar had felt invisible her whole life. She had never been afforded dignity or worth beyond the duties that she could perform. No one had ever bent down to ask her how she was or how she was doing. Nobody had ever asked her how her life was going. But as she walks back home, she looks up to the heaven and she declares something so profound. You are the God who sees me. You are the God who sees me. You have heard my cries and now you see me. Why? Because I am made in your image. Why? Because you love me unconditionally. Why? Because through every single moment of hardship in my life, you have been there. You have been present. You are the God who not only hears my cries, you are the God who sees me in my circumstances, in my brokenness. I am a bearer of your image. I'm going to invite Emily forward, and we're going to sing one final song as we reflect on this for just a moment. One day during Jesus' life, a leper approached Jesus. Uh, leprosy in their day was a, was a horrible disease where you could no longer feel anything. And so a lot of people, uh, as they were sleeping, they would have rats come up and they would nibble on their fingers and they had no idea that their, that their fingers were being you know, chewed on and, and eaten alive. And so they'd have these horrible diseases where limbs would fall off and fingers would fall off and ears would fall off and they would be blind from, from diseases that they, w they couldn't even feel. And so uh, leprosy was horrible. And so um, anytime that a leper approached a public forum, they'd have to yell, unclean, unclean, as they entered into it to let everybody know in earshot that somebody unclean was coming into their territory and they could run away as fast as they possibly could. Unclean, unclean. And so this leper comes to Jesus and he falls on his knees before Jesus, and he says, Jesus, if you, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And so filled with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand, and he touched him. Nobody touched lepers. They were the unclean. They were the untouchables. Nobody touched lepers, but Jesus reaches out his hand, and he touches the leper, and he says, I am willing, be clean. On a different day, while in Samaria, Jesus was walking by a well and saw a woman drawing water from it in the heat of the day, and he asks her for a drink. 
her response was, well, you're a Jew. How can you ask me for a drink? Don't you know that the Jews despise Samaritans? Don't you know that the Jews think we're dogs? Don't you, don't you, think, don't you know that the Jews think that we're just half-bred idolaters and that we have no value and we have no worth? Don't you know that? Well, Jesus replies, well, you know what? If you knew the gift of God, if you knew that God loved you unconditionally, if you knew that he had bestowed upon you unconditional worth, if he knew, if you knew that God gave you dignity and purpose upon this world, how would that begin to change yourself? How would that begin to change the way that you view yourself? Well, well, look, man, the conversation continues. My life is hard. You know, I'm tired. All I do is carry water back and forth to this well and to the city all day long. It's not the most glamorous job in the world. There's not a lot of praise for my work. I'm not highly valued in the skill set that I have. And so Jesus offers her water that will take away her thirst. And of course, she's thinking this is like magical water. And so she's like, oh, please give me this water. I don't want to keep coming to this well. Please give me this water. Well, Jesus tells her, well, okay, go back and get your husband and then come back here and I will give you this water. But she wasn't married. She was a concubine. She was one of those slave girls. She was a, a, a servant. She was someone's house slave. She was someone's backup plan. She had been married, but it had been a while. Uh, she had actually been married five times and divorced five times. In their day, women were not permitted to initiate divorce, and so the reason that she was divorced is because someone didn't want her. Five times over, she had annoyed someone to the point where they said, no, get out of here, or she had done something to the point where they said, no, get out of here. Five times that she was rejected by her husband. For some reason, this woman was unwanted over and over and over and over again. She was rejected. She was unseen. She was unheard. She had no worth. She had no value whatsoever. But here's Jesus sitting and talking with a woman, and he is pulling apart all the hurt and the pain and the frustration and the sadness, and he is present with her, and he is wrestling with her through her life. And eventually, after Jesus reveals to her that he's the Messiah, she runs back to her village and she says, Come, see the man who told me everything that I have ever done. Come and see the man who knows me and doesn't shun me. Come see the man who knows my heart and doesn't toss me off to the curb. Come see the man who knows everything that I have ever done and still says I am worthy and still accepts me and still extends me grace and still loves me even in my junk. Come see the man who knows my inner heart and still loves me. Come and see. Come and see the man who has given me unconditional value and dignity and worth. Let me introduce you to Jesus. Jesus.